This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. Good afternoon. Welcome to Health and Living with me, T. Shao Ik. It's Friday afternoon. It should be our Doctor in House segment with Dr. George Lee. But as he is away today, we have a different doctor in the house, or rather on Zoom today, Dr. Kor Sweeking, Independent Health Policy Specialist and co-founder of the Malaysian Health Coalition. And we're gearing up for GE15. And we'll be asking Dr. Kor, what should political parties and candidates um, prioritize? Uh, when it comes to health issues. How are you today, um, speaking? I'm well today, shall we? And just like everyone else in Malaysia, endlessly thinking about elections and the quality of the government uh, that we're all going to vote in. Absolutely, because, um, you know, in the first place, uh, everyone was uh, kind of off, taken off guard. Uh, in a way, maybe we knew it was coming with all the hints that had been dropped about parliament being dissolved. And then we were waiting on tenterhooks for the 15th general election date, which is now set for 19th of November. And um, health is really on everyone's minds, uh, largely because of the impact of COVID-19. And a lot more conversations, which has been driven a lot by um, uh, the leadership from the Ministry of Health uh, when it comes to the urgent need for healthcare reforms. So the question is, will political parties sort of um, take up the gauntlet, right? Will they make healthcare a priority? Um, Let's uh, spend the next hour or so looking at what we've achieved since the last general election, um, how that might set the stage for some campaigning uh, leading up to the 15th general election and um, perhaps what's on your wish list, SK. But also, what's on everyone's wish list? Um, for all of you listening, tell us what is your wish for health and healthcare from the political parties or perhaps from your uh, the candidate in your constituency. You can call us at 03-7733-2900. You can also WhatsApp us at 018-789-8899. Perhaps the first question, SK, um, what do politicians have to do with health issues that we, uh, as the Rakyat, go through? through on a daily basis. What role do our elected lawmakers play in health policies? The um, great question to kick us off, Shawik. Um, I guess health politicians and health policies can play a small role or play a large role. The actual drafting of the policies are usually left uh, um, to the technocrats within the Ministry of Health. And they're very good at their job. Uh, you know, highly educated people with masters and PhDs are uh, spending 20, 30, 40 years in a particular field. They're very good at drafting policies against tobacco, for example, to control sugar, for example, or to improve our exercise rates, for example. So most of the drafting is actually done at the technocrat level at the Ministry of Health together with the Attorney General's chambers. And we can rely on our highly qualified technocrats uh, to do that. Politicians come in because they have to uh, build political legitimacy and political will and mobilize political support from the population. Of course, that's an ideal setting. To repeat, the ideal set in the ideal setting, the politician would be out there in the public and talking to the rakyat and informing them of the need for health reform and selling the policies of the Ministry of Health to them instead of only leaving it to the technocrats. And in an ideal situation, there should really be a very strong, mutually interdependent mutually supportive and very consensual and symbiotic relationship between the politician 
who goes out and builds political support and makes a difficult political decisions because this person uh, has got the political legitimacy that comes from being voted in but needs to be supported uh, by the technocrats inside the Ministry of Health. And that's the ideal scenario of how the technocrats and the political leaders can work together. So ideally um, is uh, the key word here. Uh, realistically, what does it look like for us? In Malaysia, realistically, uh, it's uh, less, uh, shall we say, optimistic for us. Uh, it doesn't really fit ideal. But then again, there are very few countries that meet the ideal, really. And uh, even if you meet the ideal, it takes a very special minister, uh, perhaps the one, uh, the current health minister that we have, uh, who is perhaps a once-in-a-generation health minister, um, to, to really um, try to work in that ideal setting. The point being, um, realistically, what's happening today uh, is that in, if you look at the last 10 years or so and the different health ministers that we've had, um, they have been playing it safe. They've been playing it safe because the difficult decisions for health reforms that are needed will be unpopular or could be unpopular and will require a lot of political capital. And because there was no urgent need to reform, um, we could always kick the decision down the road. So that was one. This is one very important, uh, shall we say, gap between ideal and the reality in the last 10 years or so. I think Minister Kyrie has had a very uh, successful stint as health minister. He was aided by some forces which were outside of his control. A lot of it, uh, some of it were in, within his control, some were outside of his control, like COVID. COVID happened and gave every country a once-in-a-generation opportunity to reform their health system. Why? Because the entire population of that country would support reforms for health because they realise that it's in their best interest to pay a little bit more to get better health. And this unique opportunity should really be grasped by politicians today. If you master health issues and you talk about health, as much as you talk about economic development, national security and issues of good governance and accountability in Malaysia, you are going to win votes. And if you win votes, that's going to put you into power. If you start talking about health, and this is in, shall we say, yeah, uh, rational self-interest uh, of politicians uh, to master health policies. Win-win mm, situation. You mentioned political will. And in Malaysia, it's always quoted, you know, we have great policies, blueprints, po uh, plans of actions. Lack of political will is where we get stuck. Uh, and I'm already getting a sense of uh, how we can see the contrast, you know, if uh, somebody, if a leader, a political leader has that or, or wants to take a bit of a risk. I guess, uh, to, to, to gain that political support, right? Um, any thoughts on certain issues where you see political will being the sticking point? I can think of maybe three issues, uh, shall we? And uh, these are three issues um, which uh, is a bit of a broken record theme for me, actually, because uh, at every opportunity I'll talk about, firstly, human capital. We need political will to resolve the issues of contract doctors, contract pharmacists, uh, better terms of service, stop bullying, create a more conducive workplace culture, retain talent within our civil service. All that are sub-issues. Each of them are so big. But the overall issue over here is human capital, and that requires a lot of political will. The second issue that requires a lot of political will is healthcare financing. We all believe that healthcare is a human right, and that's a whole speech about why healthcare is a human right. I agree to that. The but is, but somebody has to pay for the, all that healthcare. Let's assume that uh, we have no corruption, no wastage, no fraud and no abuse. We'll fight corruption, wastage, fraud and abuse. Let's assume we've successfully fought corruption, wastage, fraud and abuse. And that's another separate conversation about political will. And we've arrived at a perfectly efficient spending system. 
somebody still needs to pay for that spending system. And it's more often than not the taxpayer. Then that's require, we require political will then to get people to pay, especially if they're paying for somebody else's, for services that somebody else's enjoy. For example, public health. So public health is a public good. And I may be paying money so that other people get healthier, noting that it will benefit me very indirectly. That's the second area that is political will, health financing. So the first two areas are human capital, lots of political will needed there. And the second area is uh, health financing, lots of political will needed there as well. The third and final one is the organization of service delivery. That's just a technical term, really. What it means is, how does the public sector, the government hospitals, interact with the private sector, private hospitals? How does the clinic of primary care interact with hospitals? How does hospitals interact with clinics, interact with care in the community, delivered at home, digital health, telemedicine services, and so on? How you organize service delivery requires big decisions about the political economy of health. For example, EPF, Kazana, and Permodalan Nacional owns private hospitals. So any policies that we make about uh, private hospitals and regulate them or not regulate them has got an impact on the investment profile and the performance of uh, Malaysia's sovereign wealth funds. So all that requires a lot of political will as well. These are the three areas, human capital, health financing, and the organization of how we deliver the service. And on that last point, we have Madiha who messaged in um, her wish list or, or her wish is um, for more and better government clinics or, or clinic kesehatan uh, distribution so that they are built according to population density, not just geographical location. Um, she says investment in primary care is essential. Any thoughts on that? Uh, thank you, Madiha, for raising a great point. Um, Madiha is talking about primary healthcare clinics. Uh, in Malaysia, we've got one of the world's best networks of primary healthcare clinics. We've got about 2,000 of them. And uh, about 95% or 90 to 95% uh, approximately of Malaysia's population lives within three kilometers of a health facility. That's a fantastic uh, number by any uh, measure in any part of the world as well. But that system was built beginning in the 1960s or so. It's right now a 60-year-old system for us. And that 60-year-old system is crying for help. And traditionally, how we decide to where to put a clinic uh, is based on, shall we say, the population, the disease burden, or make, make decisions that are usually made at Putrajaya. Now, if we decentralize some of the decisions, and if we trust some of the decisions with Selangor State Health Department, for example, or Pahang State Health Department, they might be able to make better decisions uh, because they know the, the local context a lot more than, um, shall we say, our uh, colleagues working in Putrajaya. Nothing against Putrajaya. Obviously, we need to centralize some functions. Some functions can be decentralized. For example, how many clinics and where to put them. Mm. Literally, they know the lay of the land, right? The local uh, and the district uh, and state level uh, authorities. Keep those thoughts coming in. Uh, they're great. We'd love to hear more about your wish for health and healthcare from um, the political parties that are going to be campaigning furiously for GE15 and from the candidate in your con constituency as well. So you can call us at 0377332900. You can also WhatsApp 018 789 uh, We'll go for a quick break and then come back to look at um, 
uh, I guess a, a little bit of a look back. Um, it's been a really tumultuous uh, few years since the last general elections. Uh, how did healthcare fare, uh, health and healthcare fare in those few years? And then we'll look forward to uh, what we hope to see uh, from GE15 as well. Dr. Koswi King, Independent Health Policy Specialist and co-founder of the Malaysian Health Coalition, joining me on the show today. We'll be right back on Health and Living, BFM 89.9. Welcome back to Health and Living with me, T. Shaoik, and my guest, Dr. Kor Sweeking, Independent Health Policy Specialist and Co-Founder of the Malaysian Health Coalition. You just heard a little capsule earlier, and that's uh, we're getting people to share, right? Voices from the rakyat. Yeah, what do you want uh, from the next government? What do you want from political parties and political candidates? And uh, today on the show, we are asking, what do you want when it comes to health issues, uh, when it comes to uh, things that that would affect your ability to go and see a doctor, to go to the hospital, to manage um, your health. If you have a certain diseases, you can call us at 0377332900. You can also WhatsApp us at 018789 um, SK, uh, you know, we're, 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 we, we were talking, I guess, about some ideal situations and also where um, political legitimacy, political will and political support are needed um, to buy in uh, and as well as to be able to push through the implementation of health policies. But when it comes to um, political parties and candidates um, campaigning, what are your thoughts on health issues actually forming a pillar of their political platform? Sharik, um, here's a message for the political leaders out there standing for elections in G15. Maybe, maybe I'll take the question this way. You should absolutely, sorry, take a step back. For all political leaders listening in, you should absolutely put health as a central pillar or one of the central pillars of your election pledges, promises, manifestos as an individual or as a political party. Absolutely put it as one of your central pillars alongside job creation, economic growth and so on, and also social protections. Um, here are some reasons why you should consider that. Firstly, Countries around the world, especially in the last three years of COVID, have seen that a strong performance in healthcare translates to strong performance at the polls. Examples, incumbent governments, uh, not to say that uh, we're for or against incumbent governments, but I'm just stating a fact here that uh, incumbent governments were returned um, in the New Zealand elections, in the Singapore elections, in the South Korean elections. Uh, and these are uh, elections that all happened uh, during, um, during COVID. So a strong, and these three countries perform very strongly during COVID. So a strong government performance during COVID and uh, uh, to show that you're caring about health uh, of your citizens translates to strong performance at the polls. And that's one important reason for you to put health as a central pillar. The second important reason for you to put health as a central pillar in your manifestos is because health is one of those things that uh, allows you to look um, like a statesman and a stateswoman or a statesperson, shall we say. The, reason, the, the point being that you are able to sound, uh, not sound, but actually translate that into action. Please don't just make promises because when you win power, you actually have to uh, apply the Carry them right? out, yeah. Mm, yeah, carry them out for sure because nobody, uh, everybody hates a politician who makes empty promises. Now, the point being that you will be able to um, carry out these promises and look uh, like a statesperson, statesman or stateswoman in the process. You are protecting the vulnerable, protecting the sick. 
and that's a very powerful uh, visual narrative uh, that you can provide for yourself and also your political party. The third and final reason is, let's assume that uh, political leaders join politics uh, because they want to change Malaysia and improve Malaysia for the better. We'll take that as, a, uh, as an assumption. Then if you want to improve Malaysia for the better, you got to start with health because health is everywhere. Health is as important as social protections, as important as job creation, as important as education. And it cannot supersede anything else. Um, I'm sorry, it cannot uh, be, be considered a beneath or inferior to anything else. I'm not saying health is more important than anything else, but I'm saying it's as important as the traditionally important pillars uh, of your manifesto. The final comment that I'll make over here after the three reasons why it's in your uh, rational self-interest to advocate for health policies, but not only advocate, to master health policies and to consult experts uh, who are in universities, in think tanks, and in civil society and NGOs, many of whom know a lot about health systems and health policies and would love to interact with you. Please go ahead and interact with them. And finally, I'll say that traditionally, health, po health politics is considered low politics. High politics are things like economic uh, growth, job creation, national security, border controls. These are considered issues of high politics. Social welfare protection, education, social services, healthcare services, uh, the rights of the disabled uh, and so on are usually considered low politics. This is, not, uh, this is not my classification, by the way. I'm only reflecting what academic literature says. The point being that COVID has shown us that health is high politics. Health is important and central to a country. And because of those reasons uh, that I've mentioned, it's in your rational interest to become a master for health policies, to consult health policy experts, and also to incorporate them as a central pillar in your manifestos, either individually or as an organisation. And before we get to um, perhaps what you would like to see included in manifestos uh, and later on in the governing uh, of the next government, uh, let's take a look back. I will look at, if I can call it, the health performance uh, from 2018, the last elections, to where we are now. What do you think were some major health issues that, well, we had two governments, didn't we? Both Pakatan Harapan and then the Perikatan slash Barisan coalition. What were they able to address and what left what what was what was left unaddressed Shavika, it's very difficult to write a report card so to speak for the last five years uh, no. because, <laughs> since 2018 uh, because we've had three prime ministers in the last five years in the last three years and we've got three health ministers uh, as well and and that makes it quite and a difficult pandemic to, in the middle of everything and a pandemic in the middle which has got uh, obviously, the pandemic is bad, right? Uh, lots of people suffered for it. Uh, the, the silver lining from the pandemic is that it served as a wake-up call that, uh, for us to um, well make the difficult decisions. It also provided political cover and political capital to make difficult decisions for healthcare. So in some respects, uh, the, the, there is some silver lining uh, to the pandemic, uh, notwithstanding the huge amount of human suffering uh, that was in place over there. And we hope that that suffering is not wasted that we're able to um, benefit in, in, a, in a way uh, from, okay, that's a poor choice of words. Uh, what I mean to say is that uh, we'll be able to not let the sacrifice of so many Malaysians go to waste, that we're able to use this opportunity to reform the healthcare system. So you've asked for a report card. Here it is. Mixed is a short answer to it. Um, mixed with a lot of missed opportunities. Um, so there are some things that went well, and I'll give a list, and there are some things that were missed opportunities uh, that I'll give a second list as well, and I'll, uh, I'll pass the floor back to you. The 
the, the what we did well most mostly after COVID happened because there was a lot of political capital, a lot of impetus, a lot of public support for the difficult decisions in healthcare. So one good thing that happened after COVID, health reform white paper under Minister Kairi Jamaluddin, um, with a very strong focus on the non-MOH elements. To repeat, the non-Ministry of Health elements. So things that we call the social determinants of health. Example, the conditions in which you live requires a Ministry of Housing and Local Government to be involved. The conditions in which you work requires a Ministry of uh, Human Resources and Ministry of Finance and Bank Nagara to be involved. The conditions in which you play requires a local uh, state, uh, sorry, uh, municipal councils like Majis Pabandaran Taiping or Majis Pabandaran Kajang to be involved. All that uh, is under the banner of the Health Reform White Paper. And that is great because it's uh, looking at uh, the health system as a whole rather than only the Ministry of Health. And that's one good thing uh, that happened, uh, um, a highlight, shall we say, of the health performance of the government in the last five years or so. The second good thing was the spend-whatever-it-takes uh, philosophy when it comes to COVID. Now, um, we must make sure that all these funds are properly accounted for. There's no corruption, wastage, fraud, abuse. We must make sure of all that. Auditor General needs to step in. We need to have the Public Accounts Committee ensure that all the, every single ringgit and cent is accounted for. Let me set all that aside, right? Issues of corruption, wastage, fraud, and abuse. Let me set all that aside. The government opened up and said, we will spend whatever it takes. We raise our debt ceiling. We introduce multiple stimulus packages, all indicating that health is more than just hospitals. Health is in the community, in the economic stimulus packages, uh, in the education systems of Malaysia as well. These are the highlights. Here are the missed opportunities. And these missed opportunities are not to blame anyone. Structurally, it's very difficult uh, for any government uh, to talk about this, um, this, the three issues. Again, we're going to go back to human capital, health financing, and the organizational service delivery. It's very easy for a minister, health minister, and unfortunately in Malaysia, we change health ministers every two to three years. Uh, since 1955, uh, when we had our first election, uh, just before independence in 57, we've had about one health minister every 2.3, 2.5 years or so, plus minus. Now, the, the point I'm making here is that two and a half years is not a lot of time for you to learn on the job and then to implement the uh, to start the reforms and implement them, right? So structurally, it's very difficult. So the missed opportunities are in human capital, in health financing, and in the organization of service delivery. Each minister, perhaps uh, um, uh, through no fault of theirs, had to be in a situation where they could make some small decisions along the way um, and uh, um, leaving the bigger ones are for the right timing. And COVID is providing us that right timing. All right. Well, you said high, one of the highlights is the health reform white paper. And also, I take your point about the importance of continuity in that, uh, you know, the, the, the leadership, the political leadership of the ministry. You know, isn't this a, a perfect example of where politics is going to get in the way? Because we don't know what will happen with the white paper right now. True, shall we? Um, that um, the political process or the routine political process uh, might be getting in the way. Um, like whether or not we like it, uh, democracy is the least imperfect system of governance uh, that we have uh, in the world today. And that requires a periodic refresher of the mandate. We can't keep going back uh, to the people to get their mandate, right? Something that political leaders love to say, we want to return to the people and get their mandate. Basically, it's an excuse for them to, to, to get more power or to stay in power. Um, but the, the, the point being that uh, we have to let the political process take its course. Now, uh, noting that the political process has its own characteristics. Example, elections every five years, prime ministers and health ministers that come and go, even the directors general of health, uh, we've, we've been fortunate to have uh, 
thanks to Hisham being here with us uh, for the last 10 uh, years or so. So there's um, institutional memory and continuity. So that was helpful uh, to steady the ship uh, during COVID, even when there was a lot of, um, shall we say, personnel changes at the on the political front. Um, leaving aside the political process is to say that we now need to design the health reform white paper, understanding the realistic considerations of the political process and design uh, workarounds to work around the political process and ensure the chances of success. And here are three examples. The first one is something that Minister Kyrie Jamaluddin has already mentioned, which is the Health Reform Commission. We can debate about uh, who should be in it, what the skill set uh, should be in it, who should be accountable to. Here's a rough idea. Uh, maybe uh, X number of people, maybe 7 to 13 or 15 people, something like that, with the ability to um, get more subcommittees uh, of their choice, holding it accountable to parliament and giving it political and financial capital for it to guide and supervise reforms, working closely with the Ministry of Health, not above the Ministry of Health, to be clear, uh, but working closely with uh, the Ministry of Health, not above the Ministry of Health. That's one way to um, work around the political process. Having a health reform commission, prime ministers and health ministers come and go, but the health reform commission stays. The second way for us uh, to, um, say, survive the political process is to create a report card. Now, this report card has got many parallels. Uh, every two, three years or so, Malaysia's uh, civil societies gets together, does something called a universal periodic review of our Malaysia's human rights commitments uh, in respect of the um, United Nations Human Rights Council. We also have the all-party parliamentary group. We also have the CSO platform for reform. These are three uh, examples of organizations that can do a report card for health, do that every two years. Then we can hold politicians and governments uh, accountable. In fact, we can not only call it a report card for health, we can call it a report card on health reforms, to be more specific, so that we can track uh, health reforms. Thirdly and finally is the, the appropriate restructuring of the Ministry of Health. Um, and restructuring is, is a, is a um, fraught word, obviously, and we can replace it with any word that, that is more accurate. Uh, maybe I'm using the wrong word, in which case I apologize. But the point is that the Ministry of Health at the moment performs four very important functions. They deliver services, so they're a service provider. They pay for services, so they purchase services from the private sector, so they're a payer. Thirdly, they set standards. Fourthly, they regulate. And fifthly, uh, indirectly, the government is an asset owner. The point being that one ministry is a service provider plus payer, plus standard setter, plus regulator, plus uh, indirectly an asset owner. If you uh, appropriately deconflict those roles and you create enough, uh, shall we say, autonomy within the Ministry of Health, then the Ministry of Health becomes a more... Um, say, capable and competent organization uh, because its roles are deconflicted already. Yeah? So there's no more conflicts of interest in this role, allowing it to become a very strong supporter to the political process. The political process will continue. The point being that uh, the, um, the health ministry becomes a, a, a competent uh, and deconflicted presence to support the civil service. These are the three ways that we can work around the political process. We need the political process for legitimacy. We need to work around, number one, Health Reform Commission, number two, a report card for health reforms, and number three, uh, to appropriately reorganise the Ministry of Health uh, in such a way to let it support the political process. Now, we have a listener who uh, messaged in uh, asking, how about national health insurance for comprehensive health and social coverage for all? That's a really excellent uh, point for debate. And perhaps we can use that as a way to lead into where you, SK, think that parties and candidates uh, should prioritise uh, in terms of uh, planning their manifestos and, of course, um, you know, as they go in to govern. 
thank you to the listener for the question. Um, I will take a macro view and then the micro view. The macro, the macro view is uh, to talk about uh, um, the, the difficulty in the social contract. Now, we all want healthcare. I agree that healthcare, we all agree that healthcare is a human right. Uh, ultimately, somebody has to pay for it. And most of the time, the, the money comes from taxes. So while we say that we want to fund the Ministry of Health, and I agree we should appropriately fund the Ministry of Health, the money comes from taxes or debt instruments or Malaysian government securities. The money has to come from somewhere. So we cannot just endlessly spend the money and ultimately somebody has to pay for it. Now, this is a problem that even rich countries face, right? Uh, European countries, North American countries, uh, sorry, Europe and the North Asia countries like Japan, South Korea and Taiwan face these problems as well of paying for healthcare. Paying for healthcare requires difficult social contract conversations. In other words, politicians cannot make empty promises and say things like, we will fund healthcare and um, quadruple the budget, etc., without being realistic about asking the population to, um, well, meet their duties. Uh, and that's difficult for political leaders uh, to do. If they have to do it, it's very difficult for them to do it because you're essentially having to tell people to fulfill their responsibilities. Everybody loves privileges and rights. Very few people want to fulfill their duties and responsibilities. Politicians have to remind our um, citizens that there should be something called shared responsibility for health. Yes, the government is very responsible for health and we all want the government to be very responsible for health. We are also as responsible as the government. So not just the government, but individuals families, uh, companies, employers, insurance companies, uh, NGOs, foundations, philanthropies, the entire part of society, all parts of Malaysia are equally responsible for health in Malaysia, not just the government in a principle called um, shared responsibility for health. And that's the macro view. Now, using that macro view of shared responsibility for health, we can go down to the micro view. National health insurance uh, is one term. Other terms will be voluntary health insurance, social health insurance, compulsory health insurance, etc. There are many types of terms. Different countries have different terms. The big banner is called something called contributory schemes. Contributory schemes are where you contribute X percentage of your um, salary into a fund for health that is uh, for you and your family. For example, um, EPF is currently taking uh, X percentage, um, you pay X percentage from your salary and your employer pays Y percentage from your salary into your pot in EPF. And we can create a similar, uh, say, scheme to be managed perhaps by EPF or perhaps by Protect Health, a company um, that is already incorporated by the Ministry of Health and Ministry of Finance in 2016, or by a standalone healthcare fund. This is one possible model, right, uh, among money, multiple contributory schemes. The principle is shared responsibility for health. One responsibility is we're already paying taxes. So if you say that, okay, uh, we're going to pay for healthcare, we're going to increase taxes, we don't want to pay the contributory scheme, okay, that's a viable choice. Uh, so no social health insurance, but we increase our taxes. That's a viable choice, yeah, to repeat. Now, it's up to the politician, not only political will, but also political skill to guide and navigate that conversation over a long period of time. Now, contributory scheme is one possible option, the other option is raise taxes to pay for healthcare. I'll end, shall we, by saying examples of high-income and middle-income countries that have contributory schemes. High-income countries universally have them. European countries, for example, are in the European Union or the OECD. North Asian countries, Japan, Korea, Taiwan, have got contributory schemes. Um, different, uh, different percentages of the salary, uh, different ages, uh, different benefits package, and so on. Uh, but they have contributory schemes uh, in uh, high-income countries. And Malaysia aspires to be a high-income country. 
um, there could be a conversation to be had whether or not we need contributory schemes. Interestingly, three of our Southeast Asian neighbors also have uh, contributory schemes. Now, they're called different things. Thailand started in 1999. Thailand, 1999, now three schemes in Thailand uh, covering the entire population. Philippines started their journey in 1999 as well through Philippines Health Insurance Corporation. Now they cover about 90-95% of the population uh, and that's in the Philippines. And more recently, Indonesia in 2014 uh, with Jaminan Kesehatan Nasional. And that's a beautiful uh, uh, illustration in these three countries, right? That contributory schemes aren't only for the formal sector in industrialized nations, but also for the formal and informal sector in emerging and middle-income countries as well. So some things are for Malaysia to consider. Not Singapore? Mm. Singapore doesn't have uh, Singapore has a contributory scheme as well. It is true. It's called a MediSafe. And after MediSafe, there's MediShield. Uh, and after MediShield, uh, it's uh, MediFund. Uh, these are called the three M's. Um, Singapore has a contributory scheme, you're very right, uh, and uh, I excluded Singapore a little bit from that because I'm talking about middle-income countries and Singapore right. is a high-income country, okay, but you're right. Fair enough. Singapore has a contributory scheme, uh, shall we? Uh, it's called a 3M system, uh, and thanks for correcting me. No, but also we like to think we're on par with Singapore, so <laughs> I think that's where I was coming from. Um, we've had, uh, that, that was a very, very comprehensive macro and micro response um, to, you know, how would something like a contributory or national health insurance uh, scheme look like. But uh, let's go for another quick break and then come back to, uh, I want to ask SK, what else would he like to see uh, in campaigns or manifestos for GE15 if we have already set that basis that health should absolutely be a central pillar um, for political parties and for candidates. I'm speaking to independent health policy specialist Dr. Kor Sui King, uh, who's also co-founder of the Malaysian Health Health Coalition. We've had two great points coming from our listeners, so keep sending those in. You can WhatsApp us at 018-789-8899 or call us at 03-777-32900. Tell us what is your wish for healthcare from the political parties or from your candidates. We'll be right back on Health and Living, BFM 89.9. Welcome back to Health and Living with me, T. Shaoik, and my guest, Dr. Kor Sweeking, Independent Health Policy Specialist and Co-Founder of the Malaysian Health Coalition. I've been asking um, SK about... Uh, you know, how uh, health has played a role uh, in health politics as well as policy making. Uh, looking back at the last few years since uh, the GE14 in terms of some highlights as well as missed opportunities when it came to health issues. And now uh, we've started to discuss um, how uh, political parties and candidates uh, could look at certain very, very key urgent issues um, for healthcare reform, uh, health financing, who pays for healthcare and how do we need to um, reframe uh, the way we uh, go about this has been uh, something that we've uh, sort of started to touch on. Um, but tell us what is your wish? What would you like to see political parties and candidates really, uh, you know, getting serious about when it comes to healthcare? You can WhatsApp us at 018-789-8899. You can also call us at 03-7733-2900. Um, what else uh, would you like to see in campaigns and manifestos for G15, SK? Shall we? Um, 
here's a laundry list, right? Uh, and, and I'll give a, a bit of a list um, and people can add on to the list. It would be great to hear what the listeners have to say as well. And then I'll end with that one request. I just have one request uh, for um, political leaders and parties. Uh, um, every party, every state, uh, any ideology doesn't matter to me. That one request would be bipartisan support for a health reform commission. We'll talk about that shortly. The laundry list um, starts with my three big things. Hum uh, enough support for human capital because we have to protect our healthcare workers and do right by them and give them better terms of service and retain them within the public service. Secondly, make difficult decisions about political finance, health financing uh, and to ensure that we have sustainability and shared responsibility for health. Thirdly, organize our service delivery in a way that uh, um, integrates and uh, brings closer together the public and private sector and brings closer together primary, secondary and tertiary care. So it's public-private and primary, secondary, tertiary. These are my three first items in our laundry list. But there'll be other things. We need to do better in pro preventive and promotive care. We need to do better for um, non-communicable diseases. We need to better do better in health literacy so that we'll buy fewer over-the-counter products, especially products sampah or, or um, medicines uh, that you buy uh, over-the-counter, slimming pills and so on, that can really damage your kidney. We have to do something about that. Uh, other things would be uh, more money uh, and uh, more uh, priority for two very underdiagnosed and under-discussed areas, mental health and aging. I mean, we talk about it a lot, I apologize, so we do discuss it a lot, just that we don't put enough action uh, to build an infrastructure for mental health as well as aging. Uh, and then you can add on to the list, right, uh, the rights of the disabled, the rights of marginalized populations, uh, refugees and non-citizens, uh, we need to do better for um, women, we need to do better for rural people, people living in rural areas, and there's a long list of um, wish lists uh, for political leaders. Um, so that's my, uh, in a sense, a laundry list, and, and uh, um, people can, I invite people to, to tell me uh, what else we should put on that list. To do all that requires um, politics that is a little bit different from usual, just a little bit. And that just a little bit is bipartisan health reform commission. In the last, uh, uh, since um, Lanka Sheraton in uh, February 2020 or so, there's actually been quite a lot of bipartisan, um, say, initiatives uh, between the government and the opposition. There, there is a pretty good um, confidence and supply agreement in, in all but name, a confidence and supply agreement that uh, Prime Minister Ismail Sabri's government uh, will perform X, Y, Z uh, actions. Uh, for example, um, constituency funds and the commitments to institutional reforms uh, in exchange for some stability in the government. And that um, is a good signal of bipartisan collaboration. Now, we all know health is important as a whole speech. Number two, we all know that politics is unstable. That's also another speech. How do we overcome um, uh, political instability and uh, um, raise the importance of health? Bipartisan Health Reform Commission. In other words, cede a little bit of, um, say, power and influence to the, uh, to the Health Reform Commission. You can politic almost anywhere else, that's fine. But the health reforms are, should be uh, protected by the Health Reform Commission and there should be bipartisan support uh, for the Health Reform Commission, um, regardless of who's in power. And obviously, we hope that it's a good government in power and perhaps uh, um, for, for some continuity uh, in, in the, the health reforms, uh, if not the government. And to do that, we need uh, my only request uh, to all the political leaders is to implement the laundry list, um, things like diabetes, mental health, aging, and so on. We need a health reform commission and we need your bipartisan support for that. So speaking of bipartisanship, political campaigning um, can get very ugly. Uh, it can be very divisive. It's all about slagging off the other side. And I, I, 
I'm wondering uh, from your observations, not just Malaysia, right? If you've looked at uh, political campaigning in other countries as well, what would you like to see uh, from parties and candidates when it comes to language regarding healthcare issues that they may choose to campaign on? A fascinating question, shall we? And, and here are some quick responses. Uh, sorry, I've not deeply thought about uh, um, choices of words and narratives before. Um, so here are some guiding principles for our political leaders. I mean, I share these guiding principles. Would that be in the spirit of your question? Yes, it would. It would. I, I'm not looking for specific um, examples, but yes, definitely guiding principles. Mm. So here are some guiding principles for political leaders uh, to, you, to, to perhaps consider when they are giving stump speeches or writing the manifesto. Number one, you have to be inclusive in your language uh, when it comes to health. Health, by definition, um, should talk about every human being, if we extend it a little bit, perhaps even every animal, because animal health is also directly impacting human health. So be inclusive in your language, and we should not have divisive words like uh, 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 marginalizing one specific population. Invent your population. I don't want to invent one. Uh, or rather, um, uh, give an example. I, I prefer not to give any examples of marginalized populations uh, so as not to give any ideas to people. But do not marginalize anyone. Is a guiding principle. Be inclusive in your language because health for all literally means health for all human beings in that particular uh, geographic jurisdiction, in mm. this case, Malaysia. Mm. Every human being in Malaysia deserves health. And that's one guiding principle for us uh, to be inclusive in our language. The second guiding principle uh, whenever we're giving a stump speech or political leaders giving a stump speech, right, is to consider that health is more than just health care. And the third guiding principle is um. Uh, admit that you don't know and get experts. So <laughs> the first one is be inclusive in your language. Number two, health is more than just healthcare. What I mean is, we imagine healthcare as just modern hospitals with MRIs and, and cancer treatments and, and uh, surgeries and so on. Yes, that is one component of healthcare. Healthcare is more than that. Health, if you design a social policy that encourages women to go back to work uh, uh, earlier, if they want to, to go back to work earlier, after they have delivered a child, that will be good for the woman, good for the child, good for the family as well. And it will be good for economy. If the economy will be good for the family, it will be good for the health system as a whole because we get the woman to be mobilizing. That's just one example of how health is more than just hospital care. So therefore, design policies and talk about policies that are more holistic, that talk about welfare protection, social protections, health in all policies, the conditions in which people live, the conditions in which they work, like labor laws and so on. So all that will make you look very credible as a uh, well, prime minister candidate, a political uh, leader and so on. So think of health as more than just healthcare. And finally, health is very uh, complex. Um, and uh, I, I spent a number of years in, in health and, and I, I don't even know it all. The point is that political leaders can rely on experts. So if you don't know, fine. You, you're not expected to know, so better that you don't spout off. Get experts on your side, uh, form an advisory panel, advisory council, get them to advise you on this or that policy or manifesto, and that will be helpful uh, in your stance speeches as well. So be inclusive in your language. Number two, consider health as more than just hospitals and clinics, no matter how glamorous hospitals and clinics are. And then thirdly, 
uh, find experts uh, so that they can validate your assumptions or help you deliver, uh, think about your policies and so on. And that will really help you uh, master health policies a little bit more than usual. Mm, excellent. Uh, we have Amir on WhatsApp who is getting back to health care itself though, which uh, with some very, very valid points. Waiting time at an uh, emergency hospital of a emergency department of a public hospital is something like four hours before you get to see the doctor who are themselves overworked hospital buildings are complicated to move around. I feel you, Amir. Just the sheer physical navigation of it. Not enough parking spaces for patients. Uh, Really a lot of things there. Um, I'm also going to read another message. Uh, There should be hospice uh, care um, to there should be more hospice care, especially in the community. You know, going to uh, patients' homes to provide palliative care. Perhaps Soxo could set up a portion of the contributions from the workforce to um, pay for uh, the monthly cost of palliative care. Should they be required? Um, that's an interesting point. Another one. Ooh. What's your comment on climate change and health? So I think uh, the other two, I'll leave it there. Those are sort of um, um, issues that are, are, are repeated every time. Not to say they're not important, but mm, climate change and health. What could politicians um, do about this? <laughs> mm. So uh, you'd like me to comment on climate change? I mean, if you have thoughts on how, I mean, this is a massive, massive issue. Climate change alone is, is a speech on its own, like you've said. Climate change and health. Mm. Um, thanks, Shawika. Happy to share some thoughts about climate change and, uh, and health uh, and then go back a little bit uh, to the first two um, points, which is long waiting times and hospice. Uh, hospice also palliative care, uh, as uh, that's upset. Mm. Now, um, for everyone's benefit, there is something called the Center for Planetary Health, which is uh, another name uh, to describe climate change and health. Uh, Center for Planetary Health in one of the private universities in Malaysia, um, Sangwe University, and is led by Tan Sri Jamila Mahmoud. Um, and she specializes in the intersection of climate and health, and it'd be great to have her on as a guest as well so that she can tell us a lot more about climate change and health. Uh, I would then say that uh, in terms of climate change and health, uh, there are some um, technical elements and then some political elements, yeah? So the technical elements is climate change can uh, affect our health in ways that are uh, surprising and not surprising. The not surprising ways will be things like uh, tropicalization of disease. Um, as the world becomes warmer, uh, now we're, they are seeing dengue and malaria, previously diseases in tropical countries. Now these diseases are sometimes in temperate countries, meaning higher up uh, the northern uh, hemisphere and uh, lower down the southern hemisphere as well. The point being that uh, we're in a situation where as climates, uh, as temperatures become higher and warmer, um, the, there's something called tropicalization of disease. So that's one uh, r- relatively unsurprising, um, say, impact of climate. Obviously, there'll be other things like changing disease patterns, emerging infectious diseases, uh, zoonotic diseases, animal interfaces, and so on. All that is um, linked to deforestation. More people opening up more pieces of land and the interfacing, uh, more human beings interfacing more with the animals and with the insects and, and just a flora and fauna of a particular location. All that causes um, new infections or emerging infectious diseases as well. So these are things uh, that we uh, understand. Climate change... Um, Oh yeah, one more thing, heat exhaustion and heat stress and heat stroke uh, and, and emergency rooms are, need to be equipped to, to treat all that. So these are relatively uh, well understood. Less well understood but emerging, right? Climate anxiety. 
lots of people are feeling anxious, meaning it's a, it's a actually depressed state or an anxious state about the climate emergency. And that's a bit of a surprising, um, well, when you think about it, not so surprising after all, impact on climate and health. Let, let me that, That's a technical, um, say, relationship between climate change and health. What of the political relationship? Now, um, Malaysia's Ministry of Health is called Ministry of Health. In Japan, it's called Ministry of Health, Labor and Welfare. It is, is it possible to imagine a future, 20 years into the future, that we have to call it a Ministry of Health and Climate Change? That an entire government agency needs to be created with the tools and, the, uh, and to deliver the services right to mitigate climate change. The mitigation of climate change is a global problem, not just a Malaysian problem. Uh, Malaysia has got to do better with pollution. Uh, we've got to um, crack down on people importing um, illegal waste and electronic waste into Malaysia. We have to stop, uh, say, polluting factories, perhaps like the one in Linus in Kuantan, for example, uh, and uh, to be very careful about how we use our natural resources. That's what Malaysia can do. Use less, consume less, uh, recycle our products and so on. All that is what Malaysia can do. The world uh, equally needs to do something too meaning the Paris Agreement, the nationally determined contributions, and also whatever multilateral frameworks that are in place are to reduce our carbon emission. Um, we, the world, uh, has actually had one success, and uh, maybe this is something that we can consider building on. The success of in the 1990s, uh, if you remember refrigerators, we were so terrified about the ozone hole mm -hmm. uh, or the hole in the ozone layer caused by chlorofluorocarbons of uh, freon gases. Mm. Now, there was an agreement, an international agreement to phase out CFCs and HCFCs and freon. And until today, uh, all almost all the refrigerators that are in use do not use those CFCs anymore. That is probably the best example of how the world has collaborated on a very technical issue of global importance. Mm. We need to replicate that on a much larger scale for the climate emergency. All right. Um, we only have about two minutes left Perhaps uh, if you want to just briefly address the point about a hospice or palliative care. <clears throat> palliative care is important. And um, um, thanks, thank you to the listener for um, bringing this up. Uh, I'll, I'll add it to my list, actually, because um, I think that there are three things uh, that, that we're not really um, looking at. Mental health, talk a lot about it, no infra. Um, aging, talk a lot about it, no infra. Uh, peril and maybe a subset, but certainly distinct from aging, is the issue of palliative care as well. As people live longer, we want them to have a comfortable end of life and a comfortable life at the end as well. Um, and that, that requires a, um, conversations on a few things. Number one, funding and financing, because even Soxo money and Soxo is even less well capitalized than EPF. And EPF is already quite uh, withdrawn out uh, as a result of COVID. Mm -hmm. um, and we need to capitalize Soxo. How? Um, improve our economy, contribute a little bit more uh, to Soxo, and maybe then we'll, we'll have a little bit more uh, funding. Noting that that funding also needs to be catalytic. Catalytic in the sense that we cannot just rely on Soxo funding. So funding is one thing for palliative. The other thing about palliative is clinical, as in we need to train clinicians, healthcare professionals to manage the difficult conversations for palliative care. Thirdly and finally, for palliative care, the legal elements, and legal comes with ethics, comes with culture and society too, meaning advanced care planning, advanced directives, wills, living wills, these are all um, the, the legal and even the cultural, ethical, moral infrastructure is not yet ready. So it's not just financing, which I agree is a problem. We have to build a clinical infra, we have to build the legal and ethical infra as well for us to have good palliative care. 
you know, listening to all of this really just drives home that point you made that surround yourself with experts, with technical experts, because health is so complex, is in everything. Uh, and the only way for you to master health politics is by speaking uh, to the thinkers uh, in these areas. Dr. Kor Sweeking, Independent Health Policy Specialist and co-founder of the Malaysian Health Coalition, speaking to me about how political parties, candidates and political leaders should and can make health a priority in their manifestos for GE15. Thank you so much. You've been listening to Health and Living, BFM 89.9. You have been listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. For more stories of the same kind, download the BFM app.